Well, if you could be turning in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Uh, about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to uh, train to run a marathon. Um, it's a race that's over 26 miles. I thought, you know, I want to try that. I'd been running a little bit, and I got it in me to, to try to do something I didn't think that I would be able to do. And while I was training, I, I became fascinated with and impressed with many endurance athletic events. Because I was learning, you know, what the stamina was required and the perseverance. And I, I noticed some of these other athletic events that are around the world that, that just are amazing feats of endurance. And it was uh, very interesting and amazing to me. They caught my attention. I mean, did you know that in that 26.2 mile marathon race, there are many elite runners today in the world that can run that in under a five minute per mile pace? Five minutes a mile for 26 miles. There are longer races though now. If, uh, if 26 miles isn't enough, they, they're typical, typically run 50 mile and 100 mile ultra marathons all over the earth. Can you imagine running for 100 miles? At one time, not spread out over the course of a year, right? A hundred miles. There's the well-known endurance event in France, the Tour de France, a cycling event, and they typically cover a course of over 2,000 miles. There's the Ironman Triathlon, which is 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride, followed by the 26-mile marathon. Again, all in one day. And there are uh, some that cover that in less than nine hours. It's an amazing feet of endurance. But there's one event that's recognized as the most enduring, the most difficult, the most demanding endurance race on the planet. And it actually occurs every year, not far from here, in Badwater, California. Yes, there is such a place. It's called the Badwater Ultra Marathon. I mean, it sounds scary. It's a 135-mile run starting in Badwater, California, the lowest elevation in the Western Hemisphere, and it travels around. It goes up three mountain ranges, finally to Mount Whitney, which is the tallest elevation in the contiguous 48 states. There's about 13,000 feet of ascent over the course of this race. So it's not only the mileage, but it's the difficulty of the mileage. It's punishing. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention, Badwater, California is in the middle of Death Valley. This race is run in the middle of July every year 120 plus degree temperatures i mean it boggles the mind and about 90 people every year go out there and give it a go some of them actually compete complete it in less than 24 hours so if any of you are interested you can go to www.badwater.com if you want to sign up for this year's event and i mentioned these endurance events because the Christian life has often been compared to running a race, right? The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here Paul compares it to a race. And you've probably heard the Christian life is not a sprint, but a marathon. And I think that is true, but, you know, I don't think it... I would contend it's not the ordinary 26-mile variety. I think it's more like the Badwater ultramarathon. You know, it's fraught with hazards, with trials, 
The Christian journey is grueling. It's long. It's demanding. It's exhausting. And we not only battle the the physical fatigue as we encounter trials, temptations, and the like, but there are obstacles thrown our way. Satan is after us. The world. Our own flesh. You know, it's really like bad water marathon, ultra marathon, but having wild animals on the course and having cars that you have to dodge around and getting hit once in a while. I mean, that's really, I think, more what the Christian life is like. Truly to live a holy life is a constant battle. That's what led Thomas Watson to say of the Christian life, "'Tis sweating work all the way to glory." I think he's right. But it's an event we must finish. Whatever it takes, we need to get through the desert. We've got to scale the steep mountains. We have to battle the fatigue, the heat, the thirst. We must get to the finish line. We need to persevere. And that's the message that the writer of Hebrews gives us here in Hebrews 12, 1-3. It's in these verses that he tells us to keep running the race of the Christian life and never give up. We must run with endurance. And these last few months we've been learning from Hebrews 11 of the great examples of the faith. And Hebrews 12, 1-3 really is a conclusion. It should be part of chapter 11. It's the concluding thought, the concluding statement to all that the writer of Hebrews has been telling us. For these three verses complete our understanding of how to live by faith so that we endure. Look there with me as I read Hebrews 12, 1-3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews here calls us to run the race with endurance. And he first tells us that, firstly, by giving us the motivation to run in verse 1, and then secondly, the means to run with endurance in verses 2 to 3. So let's first look at the motivation to run with endurance. As we learned previously, the author of Hebrews is writing primarily to Jews, to Jewish Christians. There were some sitting on the fence, maybe that hadn't made a decision to make a commitment to Christ. But the believers were getting weary. They were getting beat up. The Christian life wasn't all that they had expected it to be. Some were tempted to go back to their old religion, to throw in the towel, give up Jesus and go back to what they were more comfortable with. Many had started well, but some were wavering. They needed encouragement to endure. They needed the motivation to remain in Christ. So from the beginning of the letter, the author of Hebrews He begins to tell them about the superiority of Christ in His person and His work. He tells them that Christ is above all creation. He's superior to everything. In fact, He is God. He's a superior man. He's a perfect man. Superior high priest. In fact, the greatest in all of human history. And His sacrifice on the cross is the one and only sacrifice that is able to pay for sin. The author then calls them to respond to Christ. In chapter 10, verse 19, there's a a transition there where he says, in light of these things, in light of these things about Jesus, draw near to God. Hold fast your confession of faith and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then in 
chapter 10, verse 32, we see the author move toward this theme of endurance. Look back there with me for a moment in chapter 10, verse 32. He says there, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully that seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. And as here he introduces in verse 32 this word endure for the first time in his letter, and he's going to repeat it several times after that, all the way up through the middle of chapter 12. Because this forms a section, this idea of endure is to remain under, literally. It's a a perseverance, a fortitude, a steady determination to keep going no matter what. They endured some conflict and persecution in the past. They had goods taken. They had gone to those who had been in prison to encourage them. They would made some sacrifices for their faith. But now they were wavering. Look at verse 35, what he says there. Therefore, do not... Throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Don't give up now, he says. You endured in the past, stick with it. Now, why would he have to be reminding them of these things? Why would he have to be telling them to endure? It's because things were getting tougher. They were getting more difficult. In fact, in Hebrews 12.4, he says there that they should expect greater suffering. In fact, potentially suffering to the point of shedding blood and death. And I think that uh, the letter was probably written just before Nero's great persecution of believers in the late 60s. Because of this, they needed to endure. And that endurance would come by faith. And hence, chapter 11. All the examples of those who live by faith, who found God faithful to carry them through when they trusted in Him. And he goes through example after example in that chapter 11, concluding with the exhortation of 12.1, Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, most of your translations there in chapter 12, verse 1, probably say, let us lay aside and let us run, as if they're two parallel commands. But the uh, laying aside there is actually, it's a participle. It's subordinate to the main idea. To lay aside is uh, the removal of clothing. And that's what runners would do when they would enter a race. Particularly back in, in Greek times, right? A lot of them would run without any clothes on at all. And so before the race, they would disrobe themselves to prepare for that event. And the race here is what is in focus, not what's done before it. Right? When we go to a sporting event, we don't go to watch the players warm up. We watch, go to watch them compete. And that's the focus here. I think a better reading would be having laid aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance. That's the central idea here, to endure. As I said before, the idea of endure or endurance is mentioned uh, at least six times between the middle of chapter 10 and the middle of 12. This section is focused primarily and solely on them persevering, them needing to endure, and likewise to us. And he uses this idea of an athletic event, of a contest, in order to communicate that principle. The word here for race uh, was the word agone. 
Does that sound like any word you might know? Agony. Yeah, the race that he's talking about here was a conflict, a fight, a struggle, a severe test of endurance. And the Christian life here is compared to an agony. Paul said as much many times in his letters. 2 Timothy 2.3 he said, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He said in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ, Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What's Paul telling us? This Christian journey that you are on is a war. It's a fight. It's a battle. Jesus warned us as well in Luke, 29, Luke 9, 23 and 24 when He said, If anyone wishes to come after Me, it will be a cakewalk. Roses all the way. No, He said He must deny Himself, right? Take up His cross daily and follow Me. That was a daily commitment to be willing to die. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of me. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. These things are telling us being a follower of Christ is not a life of ease. And that's why I have a problem with the way the gospel is often being presented today, that just come to Jesus and all your problems are going to go away. All He wants to do is bless you. He'll give you wealth. You'll be healed of sicknesses and disease. You'll have comfort in this life. Oh yeah? Tell that to Job. Tell that to the people at the end of Hebrews 11 who were tortured and imprisoned and martyred. Tell that to Pastor Deej's wife. The woman we saw last week in the video whose husband was beaten to death by Hindus for sharing the gospel. Tell that to her. Tell that to John the Baptist who ate bugs, lived in the desert, and eventually was beheaded in a shameful death. How about Jesus? Tell that to him. Was his life easy? He went hungry. He had fatigue. He was ridiculed. He was beaten, tortured, and brutally murdered. Now, the message of the cross, it, it promises hardship. It promises difficulty. It will be an agony. Satan is now your adversary. Before he was your friend, but when you made a commitment to Christ, you became his enemy. His target is on your back. Sins that you didn't care about before you were a Christian now plague you as you're trying to battle them and get them out of your life, and it's a struggle. Before you didn't care. Now it's a burden, it's a trial. You're now an enemy of the world. Even God Himself will bring trials in your life. Hebrews 12, 4-11 tells us that. And He'll do it in order to conform us to the image of Christ. And that's what Jesus tried to get across to the rich young ruler. Remember Him when He came to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, give up everything. Or the other man who came to Jesus said, I'll follow you. Jesus said, foxes have holes, holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Right? He's telling them, you follow Me, life's going to be hard. And that's what the Hebrews were experiencing here. They were encountering hardships. Hardships that challenged their faith. So the Lord tells them here in Hebrews 12.1 to run the race with endurance. 
Press on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a believer under persecution in Nazi Germany, said, the only fight which is lost is that which we give up. After the disastrous defeat of the British forces in Dunkirk, William Churchill stood before the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940. And it was here that he sent a clear message to the world that Britain was not going to give up that she would endure no matter the cost. And the speech he gave there is considered by many to be among uh, the most, the greatest wartime speeches delivered. And he closed his speech with this. And I'm not Brock, so you're not going to get a Churchill imitation right here. Sorry about that. This is what he said. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Then about a year later, at a school graduation, Churchill said these words, as he was reflecting on the previous year of the war. This is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. You know, Churchill inspired a nation to fight in the midst of great odds. And that was in a war for human lives. We are in a war for human souls How much greater the need to endure. Keep running the race of the Christian life and never, never, never give in. And to motivate us to run with endurance, the writer of Hebrews begins chapter 12, verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what's his message there? You're not alone. Many have gone before you. Many have fought the same fight that you're in. Many have raced the same race and they made it. They endured. They persevered to the end. The picture here of a great cloud of witnesses isn't the idea of us running in this race and, and former past saints looking down on us, cheering us on. No, the word here for martyr or for witness is martus, from which we get the word martyr. And it means, uh, A testimony, someone like on a witness stand giving a testimony of what they've seen or experienced. The many examples in chapter 11 are the lives of others bearing witness of God's faithfulness in their life as they lived it by faith. Notice at the end of Hebrews 11.4, we get this idea where it says, Abel, through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. See, it is these witnesses, it's not... Them watching us, it's really us watching them. Chapter 11 is a recitation of faith. The faith of Abel and Enoch, of Abraham and Moses, Rahab, David, Samuel, Gideon, and many, many more. Example after example of those who live by faith, who face the same challenges that you and I face daily. And through their trust in God, they were able to see God do amazing things in their lives. And then in verse 32 of chapter 11, the preacher in him takes over. Look with me there. Hebrews 11:32. 32. 
He begins to build up momentum. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about out in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that they, apart from us, would not be made perfect. And then we hit that key word in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, and he uses a unique word here for it, seen only twice in the New Testament, Therefore, it's almost like he's reaching the peak of his message. He's, if he had a pulpit in front of him, he'd be pounding it. He'd be waving his arms around, increasing in his volume, saying, Therefore, they did it. You can do it too. You can endure just like them. Many have gone before you. They were in the same difficult race as you, and they survived by God's grace. You can do it too. Don't give up. Don't give up. You can make it. And brothers and sisters, this cloud of witnesses didn't stop at Hebrews 11. They didn't end in the first century. Many, many more have followed them and are surrounding us. The crowd is getting huge around us. By faith, William Tyndale, he brought us the English translation for Bibles. He was burned at the stake for it. By faith, Martin Luther, he took a stand for the message, the true gospel of justification by faith alone against an entire religious system. By faith, Adoniram Judson spent 38 years toiling in Burma with very few converts, and yet, a hundred years later, over six million people had come to Christ, all of whom could trace their spiritual ancestry to this man. By faith, John Bunyan, heard about him last week, right? He spent 12 years in prison, 12 years apart from his wife, 12 years apart from his blind daughter, and went on to produce the most popular Christian book in history outside of the Bible. By faith, Hudson Taylor, very gifted man, he gave up a life of ease and comfort in order to go to China to bring the gospel. Some say today that there are more evangelical believers in China than anywhere on the earth. John Patton, by faith, risked his life to bring the gospel to an island of cannibals outside of Australia. He lost his wife and his baby boy to fever. He served there alone for four years after that. When he was done, nearly the entire island came to Christ. By faith, Pastor Deja from Orissa, India, who we saw last week, was beaten to death for Christ. By faith, his wife... Pushpanjali carries on the work of the gospel there. By faith today, people live with disabilities or cancer or the loss of a child. By faith today, many have conquered addictions, gone through great financial loss, put together broken marriages. By faith, many have brought family members to Christ. And I could go on and on. It's not just those in Hebrews 11, but there are millions more who testify to us and they say, Trust in God! 
He can be depended on. They all cry out, endure, persevere. You can make it. I know some of you are here struggling today. Maybe as you look on the coming year, the coming month, week, maybe even today, you wonder if if you're going to make it. Maybe you have a wayward child or spouse. Maybe you're suffering persecution. You've lost your job or, or your hours have been cut. Maybe you're discouraged or you're battling pornography. Struggling with bitterness. Maybe alcohol, pride, depression. Maybe your marriage is failing. Maybe you're losing or have lost a loved one. Right? I could go on. Many things that it's just tough. And then there's the daily battle we have with Satan. There's the daily battle we have with the world, our own flesh. It's overwhelming when you sit and think about it. But this great cloud of witnesses has a message for you. God will not fail you. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. Trust Him. But some may say, well, is that really true? You know, I've been praying for Him to deliver me from this difficulty or trial or temptation, and I haven't seen any change. I mean, didn't He abandon those? The end of Hebrews 11 who lost their lives or were imprisoned or were taken from their loved ones or tortured? How can God allow me to go through the pain I'm going through if He loves me and would never forsake me? Well, Hebrews 12.11 says that He brings these things to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. It's for your good. It's for His glory. He will use those things to draw you near to Him, which is what we all need. It may be hard, but, but trust Him. And if you're His child, don't think for a moment that He's abandoned you. Many of you... Uh, probably know about our eight-year-old daughter's uh, hospital stay last November and December. She had a wound that had gotten severely affected in her knee, and she needed uh, several surgeries to to deal with that. And those surgeries were scary for her. She dreaded them. One particular day, uh, it was very difficult. She actually had to go in the operating room twice. So she gone under once, had to come out, and then go back in and go under again. And I went with her in the operating room to assist her with the anesthesia because the first time she was, she was fighting that mask and having them put it on her, she was terrified of the thing. And as the gas mask was put on her, she cried out in fear. She didn't want to do it. And here I am holding that mask over her face, and she's crying out, Daddy, Daddy, no, help me, Daddy. She's terrified. She feels alone. She feels as if her father has forsaken her and forcing her to go through this. But she needed that surgery. She needed to be put under to have that surgery. And I knew what the end was of this and that it was for her good, but she didn't see it. I remember the first thing I asked God through my tears as I walked out of that operating room was I said, Father, is this how you feel when I'm suffering? When you put that mask over my face and you hold it there, Letting me go through a trial, do you have the same emotions? You know, I think he does. You matter to him. He loves you deeply. He's not uncaring or unfeeling. But you know, there are those times we need that mask over us. We may not see the end. Trials are for good. They are. Keep running the race by faith. You can trust him. 
And notice at the end of verse 1 there in Hebrews 12 that it says it's a race that's set before us. It's not a course that you or I make. It's a course that God sets out in front of us. And you know what? We all have different courses. Some of you may get that 26-mile marathon, but there are others of us who are in bad water. (laughs) Sounds like most of you maybe are in bad water, right? God's decided that's what I want you to run. But it's all in His plan, and He's He's got a perfect plan, one that will help you grow into the likeness of Jesus if you will endure by faith. So the motivation to run with endurance is given in the testimony of those who, Hebrews 11, that history validates that faith in God works. Chapter 11, it provides a strong motivation to run with endurance, to, to persevere. But there needs to be a how, right? With it's good to have the motivation, but you also need a strategy, right? It's kind of like those situations in the athletic events in the realm of sports when you have this, this huge underdog team that's taking on this powerhouse, right? And the coach is coming up with many examples from the past of how past underdogs had gone on to, to win great victories. And he's trying to motivate them, to stir them up, to give them hope and excitement. And that's good. That's important. It's necessary. But if that coach doesn't have a plan or a strategy... <laughs> It ain't going to work. They're not going to get very far. And so here we not only have the motivation in Hebrews 11 through 12.1, but we also have the strategy, the plan. And he gives that to us in verses 2 to th- two and 3. Notice verse 2, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. You see, we run with endurance by this one thing, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's it. It literally means to look away. The idea is to to look away from everything else and focus your attention on one thing in particular. To not deviate in what you're looking at. It's fixing your attention on something to the exclusion of everything else. We're to give Jesus our undivided attention. And that verb for fixing here, it's a, it's a participle. It, it describes how the running is to be done. It's kind of like, for example, if I were to say, I went to the store walking all the way. Now, the main idea, the main point of that sentence is I went to the store, right? But the walking all the way tells you how I did it. And that's exactly the construction we have here. Let us run the race with endurance is the main thought. Now, how? Well, that's by fixing our gaze on Jesus. Focusing on Christ is such a critical principle. Keeping our attention directed ahead to Him. Right? Because when you focus your eyes, it's it's critical in running. It's critical in driving. It's critical in playing a sport and everything, really. I mean, you can't drive very well if you're looking at the steering wheel or at the hood or at your cell phone. Right? You can't do it. I had a friend of mine, he had just uh, gotten his driver's license. Uh, this was in high school. And uh, he had gotten his car, you know, he was driving down in his cool Ford Fairmont down the main drag. And he sees us walking on the sidewalk, so he's like, hey, hey, Tim! Right? Didn't look ahead. Guess what happened? Well, a VW bug got to feel uh, to feel his uh, his bumper behind him. And I remember just watching this whole event take place. You know, his eyes were not fixed ahead of him. They were distracted. And he suffered for it. So did his insurance payment. Probably something from his parents, too. And that is the message. Come to think of it, that's why he, he never drove after that for a while. 
<laughs> this is the message to us here. Constantly keep your focus on Christ. Don't waver. Don't deviate. And that endurance is not in us. The writer of Hebrews here is not saying, gut it out. You can endure on your own. No, he's saying, get your attention onto Christ. Look away from yourselves. Look away from everything around you. And look solely in front of you to the one who has gone before you. We endure by faith, and it's a specific faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Even the motivation of the saints who have gone before us, though, though good, it's, it's not complete. They were imperfect. It's good to glance at the saints, but it is vital that you gaze upon the Savior. And the critical question here is, I think, well, what does that exactly mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? What is the idea there? How do you do that? Well, the answer is found in verses 2 and 3. To fix your eyes on Christ is to follow His example. To walk as He walked. You know, when you go through the list of people in chapter 11, there, there are some pretty heavy hitters there. You've got Abraham and Moses and David. But as you look through chapter 11, there's one name that's glaringly absent. Right? Who's the greatest example of faith in history? It's Jesus. He says that one to the very end in, in chapter 12. He's the example par excellence. And that's what he is getting at with his description there when he says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Now, some of your translations may say our faith, but the word our isn't there. It's the faith. The focus is on Jesus and his faith, not on ours. And he's the author of faith, which means the leader, the chief, the champion, the primary one. He's the preeminent example, the top of the list, the greatest illustration of faith. Perfecter here means that he completed, it's to bring something to successful conclusion. And Jesus did that with his trust in God. He brought it to perfect completion. The idea is not just that he finished, but that he completed it fully and perfectly. Right, Jesus? Isn't he the greatest example of one who ran the race with endurance from beginning to end without fail? Verse 2 says that he endured the cross. Verse 3 says that he endured hostility by sinners. He stayed the course. He remained steadfast, glorifying God for his entire life. And we're called upon here to focus on him as our example. Look at the end of verse 3. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The terms here for weary, lose heart, faint-hearted, they're synonyms that Aristotle used to describe those runners who, when they got to the end of the endurance event, collapsing across the finish line. The writer of Hebrews is telling us, focus intently on Christ so that you don't collapse before that line, that you can make it and endure and not grow fatigued. Just how do we do that? How do we follow? How do we maintain our focus? Well, look at the first word in verse 3. For consider him who has endured. That word for consider is a mathematical term. It means to think again or to reason up. And it was an expression used in business or, or math for adding up a column of figures. And those of you that struggle with math, I think, can appreciate this term. You know, it takes time and intense study. It's, it's meditative. It's thoughtful. It's a careful deliberation. See, the point here in learning Christ as our example is it's more than just gaining an intellectual understanding of the facts about Christ. It's, it's getting to know Him deeply. It's a deep intimacy with Christ, with who He is, with what He's done, with His character. 
It's to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or Colossians 3.13, Christ who is our life. Look, brothers and sisters, the, the secret to a victorious Christian life, it's right here. The secret to running the race with endurance, to finishing well, is to fix your eyes on Christ, to know Him deeply, to carefully follow in His footsteps, to live life as He lived it. 1 John 1.6 says that the one who says that he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. But the fact of the matter is, I think a lot of Christians don't really believe this. They don't think they can follow Christ's example because, well, of course, He is God. He doesn't truly understand my temptations. He doesn't really know what it's like to face trials like a human. He was perfect. I am not. He was God. I am not. But that kind of thinking is going to rob you of pursuing the best strategy to run the race with endurance, and that is to follow Christ's example. Notice in Hebrews 12.2, he says here, fixing your eyes on Jesus. He doesn't say Christ. He doesn't say the Son of God. He doesn't say the Lord. But he says Jesus. And I think he's doing that to focus on his humanity. Look back with me at Hebrews 2.17. This is such an important principle. I want to look at a couple of passages here in Hebrews that talk about this. We must understand Jesus' humanity rightly if we're to really grasp and apply the message here being given to us to follow Him. Hebrews 2.17, speaking of Jesus, says, Therefore He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Or Hebrews 4, at the end of chapter 4, same idea. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Find grace to help in time of need. Listen, Jesus faced temptations the very same way that we face them. And He relied on the same things that you and I need to rely on to conquer them. Some people seem to think that at that moment when it got toughest, He pulls out His God card. No problem now. They think that, oh, he had an unfair advantage, that because he didn't sin because solely, you know, solely, he didn't sin solely because he was God. That he persevered and endured trials because he was God the Son. But is that how he endured? Look at chapter 5, verse 7, Hebrews. This is an astounding passage. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. What's he saying here? That the Father brought difficulties and trials and suffering into the life of His Son in order to teach Him obedience. Jesus had to learn it. 
like you and me. Now, that's not to say at all that he disobeyed, right? We know clearly, we just read about that. He did not sin, so that wasn't the issue. But the Father was training him and preparing him for ministry, for the difficulties and hazards of running the race with endurance. And it was that process, verse 9 says, that made him perfect or mature. Right? Luke 2.51 says that Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature, increasing in, uh, sorry, he kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Right? He was born as how? Baby. He had to learn how to eat, to walk, to talk, to read, to study, to meditate on the Word. He had to learn the trade of carpentry. And when he faced temptation from Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4, what did Jesus do? Did he pull out his deity rank and say, I'm God, you can't tempt me? What did he do? He relied on the Word of God. When Satan threw a temptation at him, he chose to rely on the truth of Scripture. He knew the Word so well from his study and meditation that he knew exactly the principle to declare to Satan in response to the temptation. He relied on the Word of God. He depended on it, just like you and I need to do when we're confronted with temptation. He showed us the example and the way to go. Know His Word so that you are ready for that time of temptation, so that you know exactly what to rely on from His truth. Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit. Matthew 4.1 says it was the Spirit that led Him into the wilderness. Matthew 12.28, Jesus said He acknowledged that He cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Jesus relied on prayer. We saw that in Hebrews 5 as He cried out in prayer and supplication. Luke 5.16 said that He often would steal away into the wilderness to pray. Jesus relied on the Word as we saw in Matthew 4. He relied on the encouragement of others. Remember Garden of Gethsemane? And He asked Peter, James, and John to come with Him. And what did He tell them there? He said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Keep watch with Me. Pray with Me. He wanted that encouragement. Do you struggle with pride? Look to Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. John 13, for Christ's example of humility. How about a trial? Are you in a trial? Are you being persecuted? 1 Peter 2, 21 and following. Or, or look at Jesus when He was on trial and how He dealt with that situation. Do you have trouble being patient with others? That's the one I struggle with a lot. Well, look at how Jesus responded to interruptions by people in Matthew 14, 13 and 14. Are you struggling with bitterness? Meditate on Jesus' example on the cross when the most heinous act in human history was committed against Him. And what did He say? Father, burn them to the ground. He said, Father, forgive them. Men, how did Jesus deal with situations where you and I might be tempted to lust? There were several occasions where women in a vulnerable situation came to him. What did he do there? Look at Luke seven thirty six through 50. Jesus shows us how to have compassion, how to be bold, how to have courage for God, how to live for his glory, how to deal with difficult people, with finances, with parents, with the death of a loved one, with authorities, discouragement, facing death. It's all there. Everything is there. All you need to live this life and follow Jesus' example, he's given us. How hard are you pursuing Christ? How well do you know Him? As you read about Him in the Scriptures, are you carefully studying what He says, what He does, what He thinks? 
He is everything. He's our example, our hope, our joy. He's our life. Intimacy with Him. Fixing your gaze on Him. Meditating on Jesus. That is the solution to your battle and trials and temptations. Take time each day to read through the Gospels. I try to do this every day. I read through a few verses in the Gospel and I ask myself these questions. What does this passage show me about the character and nature of Christ? What do I see about Him here? What does this passage, how does it help me to be more in love with Him and more in awe of Him? As you read, ask, in what way can I meditate on this truth today to keep my gaze upon Him? How does what I see of Christ in this passage relate to me and and help me in, in my trial and temptation? Ask yourselves those questions. Fix your attention on Christ. Right? If you... If you're running, and I, I learned this the hard way, if you've got your head down or you're distracted not looking in front of you, you're going to struggle with direction, with speed, with motivation. You'll get tripped up. If you keep your focus on your sin and not on your Savior, you'll not only get discouraged, you're going to stop. During my first marathon, I remembered struggling with cramps and fatigue, especially the last five or six miles. You know, it's nothing more disheartening than your leg's given out and you see mile 20. You realize, i got, I got six more of these to go. But when I, I turned the corner on about the last half mile, I saw in front of me this huge white banner. It said F-I-N-I-S-H. I can still see it. But I tell you, it was like a religious experience when I saw that thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I was amazed at my response as I... Focus my attention on that. You know, my cramps, I didn't notice them as much anymore. I was re-energized. I was able to pick up speed a little bit. I mean, there were people all over the place, but I had my attention face. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. And as my eyes remained glued to that banner, I made it. And it's just that way in our race of faith. Except, what does our banner say? J-E-S-U-S. Right? Get your eyes off of yourself, off of your failures, off of your sins. Get them on Jesus. That's how you can run with endurance. That's how you can make it. This is how you keep running the race of the Christian life and never, never give up. I know some of you here this morning aren't even in the race. You've not laid aside those encumbrances and the sin which you're entangled with. They're still bound around you. You've not turned from your sin and placed your trust in Christ. You're continuing to hold on to your sin. And maybe you're running some race, some race of religiosity or something where you feel like, you know, I run hard enough and I get through this and do enough good works and I'm going to be okay on the other side. But you're not in the right race. You need to lay aside those weights of your sin because that sin is like a chain and an anchor that's dragging you to hell. Seek Christ's forgiveness. Set aside that sin and commit your life to follow Christ. Get in the race. Brothers and sisters, we're indeed in a difficult race, but you know what? It's one you're going to finish by His grace. And oh, what awaits us at that finish line. Once we get past that banner, who's going to be there? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Think about that. We're going to see Him face to face. And when we see Him, John says we'll be like Him. The journey will be over. Sin will be vanquished. You won't need to hear the words anymore, endure, because you'll be done. You won't have these struggles anymore. In His presence is fullness of joy. In His right hand there are pleasures forever. 
I learned of a, a man named William Dyke who became blind at the age of 10. And while attending graduate school, he met a girl. He got engaged. It was an English admiral's daughter. Before the wedding, William decided that he wanted to try a medical procedure that uh, maybe could possibly restore his sight. And after the surgery, though, he chose not to have the gauze removed from his eyes only until his wedding day, so that if the surgery did work, the first thing he wanted to see was his bride. And the wedding day came, and as William's bride came down the aisle, his bandages were being removed from his eyes. And as the last ones were coming off, William was able to see his bride. And he said this, awestruck, he said, You are more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. And you know, I think it's going to be like uh, that for us when we're done with our journey. We look upon our Savior. He's going to be more beautiful than we've ever imagined. 